But as we begin this morning, as we begin our, our message time, I want to uh, pose a hypothetical question. I want to ask how, how you would respond if you heard a, a knock-knock on your door and you opened up the door to find God there. God shown up at your house. And I know that sounds a bit far-fetched. That certainly is a bit far-fetched. But the God that we gather in the name of this morning does some pretty outlandish things. In fact, I want to invite you to open up your Bible with me to turn with me to Genesis chapter 18 as we read about God showing up at Abraham's tent. God showing up, appearing, making himself known to Abraham in order to to display his incredible presence and to provide an incredible promise that could only be accomplished by one with unlimited power. We've been privileged already to hear about work that God is doing in the Jimmy Hill mission and how God is transforming lives by his great power and Those who have peace with God know that nothing is too incredible for God. Those who have peace with God know that nothing is too incredible for God. Nothing is beyond God. Nothing is too impossible, too far-fetched, too outlandish, too overwhelming for the God of the Bible. I want to invite you to look with me. Genesis chapter 18 as we begin in verse 1 and we read about incredible presence of this God who who has all power, holds the world in his hands, who's capable of doing all things, capable of accomplishing the impossible through his great power. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 1, God's word reads this way. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me get you something to eat so so you can be refreshed and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they said, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah. Quick, he said, get three seahs of the finest flour and knead it and bake some bread. Then he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to a servant who hurried to prepare it. He then brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set them before them. While they ate, he stood near them under a tree. What in the world is this about? Ever read the Bible and sort of step back and ask that question? What did I just read? What is going on here? What is taking place here? Some things in this story, as well as many stories from God's Word, sound so ancient, so foreign, from a different time. Yet other things, even found here, sound something like we might experience in our own lives, in our own homes, as unexpected guests show up at our house. In this particular case, Abraham man of great wealth, great status in that day, a man who had acquired a lot of stuff, a lot of possessions, had 
Many trained men for battle in his own household. Already proved himself to be a mighty military leader under the blessing of God as he had defeated pagan kings who had come in and taken his nephew Lot and many others. Remember that story. This Abraham experiences some unexpected guests. Three men show up at his house. And as important as he is, he automatically right away recognizes that there is something extremely special about these men. They are his superiors. And so he quickly begins to treat them as honored guests. Quickly begins to make preparations for a meal. This is, this is not leftovers out of the icebox. This is not a snack. He prepares an elaborate meal that he presents before these men. What he does sort of reminds me of my own grandmother, my granny. Reminds me of my wife, Ashley's grandmother as well, her and Something that they would do is as they make a very intentional effort every time we gather together to make sure that every area, every corner, every square inch of your stomach is satisfied. Anybody else relate to that? Don't mishear me. I'm not complaining, certainly not complaining, because every grandmother I know is a good cook. and It's a welcomed display of food. And it doesn't matter how many times we... Tell one of them, hey, we're going to eat on the way. We're going to eat before we arrive. We show up and quickly begin bringing food out, presenting options for us, making sure that we have plenty to eat, that we don't go to bed hungry. That would be a shame, says my grandmother. But it usually starts sort of like it started here with Abraham. Abraham recognized these, these men as important, bows down and Vice a man quick. He says, let me, let me get you a little water so you can wash up. Get you a little something to eat. ESV translation is a morsel of bread. Let me get you a little bite. For us, it's, let me, let me get you something to drink. Don't you want a little something to drink or a little snack? And the next thing you know, there's this great big spread of options to eat on the table, whether you're hungry or not. And here, Abraham, he, instructs his wife, Sarah, to get a lot of flour. Three seahs of flour. And if you have a footnote in your Bible, you go down, your footnote might say something like mine, that that is probably about 36 pounds. I don't know anything about making homemade bread, but I can imagine that 36 pounds of flour makes a lot of bread. And then Abraham goes and he selects a choice, tender calf, and has his servant prepare it for a meal. And there's some curds and some milk. It's a massive offering of a meal to these guests, signifying that Abraham is generous here. Extremely generous here. He recognizes that these are not ordinary folks. The fact is, we read this chapter, if we were to go through and, and look at all the cases, all the scenarios where the, the verb goes from singular to plural, and back from plural to singular, what they did and said collectively and what the Lord did and said individually, it's clear that these three men that show up at Abraham's tent this day represent God here. That God has shown up. begins right away in verse 1. The Lord appeared to Abraham. God has shown up at the home of Abraham. He shows up to have a meal with Abraham, to enjoy intimate fellowship with him, signifying that he has come in peace to them because they are at peace in their relationship with him. And the truth for us from, from this opening verses, verses 1 through 8 in the context of all of Scripture, is that with a meal, God confirms his peace 
with his people. With a meal, God confirms peace with his people. And it sounds sort of like a strange idea, a strange concept. Where in the world does that come from? And in this book on Genesis, Alan Ross traces this idea of peace and peaceful settings, peaceful meals between God and his people throughout Scripture. For example, in the Old Testament, shortly after this, or actually sometime after this, shortly after this in our Bible, a few hundred years after this, after Abraham's descendants have been delivered from bondage, from slavery in Egypt, and Moses has led them out, and God has given Moses the Ten Commandments and other laws that they're to abide by. In Exodus chapter 24, the relationship, that covenant relationship is confirmed between God and his people through a meal, partaking in a meal together. And then later as the, the offering system is set up, peace offering or fellowship offering is introduced, the people of God are to, to give this offering out of gratitude to God and they are to enjoy it, to consume it as a celebration before God of his provision for his people. And if we fast forward and take this very idea to the New Testament, we think of Jesus' words as he spoke to his followers in John chapter 6. And he said, Unless you eat this bread, drink this cup, this blood, referring to his own body, and his blood that would be poured out, broken for the forgiveness of sins, you cannot have eternal life. And we as Christians... Those who have union with God, have peace with God through Jesus Christ. Ever since the crucifixion and resurrection and ascension of Christ, we gather together and we observe the Lord's Supper, signifying what God has done for us, the peace that He has accomplished for us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Jesus Himself, Luke chapter 19, showed up at a despised tax collector's home, Zacchaeus entered in to have fellowship with him because this was one who would go from death to life. This would be one who was formerly at odds with God who would now enter into peace with God through faith in Jesus. Fast forward to the book of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 3, Jesus is speaking. John is recording words of Jesus to the church at Laodicea characterized by lukewarm Christians, inviting them to repent, repent of lukewarmness, lack of spiritual fervor, their lack of devotion to God. And Jesus says to them, here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone would open the door and invite me in, I would come in with him and eat with him and stay with me. An invitation from Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, to intimate fellowship with him. Over a, a meal, so to speak. To enjoy, fully enjoy the presence of the Almighty God. And all of these simply look forward to a day. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7. When this King Jesus, the Son of God, the Great I Am, the Savior, the Messiah, returns and gathers all of His people, His bride, the church at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we celebrate the peace that we have with our God through Jesus Christ. Folks, the Lord visits His people. The Lord visits His people. He invites His people into fellowship with Him. Invites us into an intimate relationship with Him, an ongoing relationship with Him, where we get to enjoy His presence among us, His presence in us. Perhaps God's 
presence shows up in our lives at times in unexpected ways, just like it did with Abraham. Sometimes it shows up in the ordinary through a conversation with a friend, a situation that leads us into prayer, the birth of a child, or the death of a loved one, or conversation even with a stranger. God makes His presence known to us. In fact, the author of Hebrews, in chapter 13, verse 2, would probably with Genesis 18 and 19 in mind, warns believers to make sure that they practice hospitality to strangers. For in so doing, some have entertained angels without even knowing it. The Lord visits His people. And Abraham showed hospitality to these unexpected guests who showed up at his tent. And we too, as Christians, as believers in Jesus, as followers of Christ, are also called to show hospitality to unexpected guests. The faithful show hospitality to unexpected guests. Folks, as believers of Jesus, as followers of Christ, as those that call ourselves Christians, we ought to be a people who are known for hospitality. We ought to be a people who are known for having our home open, often inviting others in, particularly believers in, for the sake of fellowship in the name of Jesus. As we join together with other Christians to carry out and to see the mission of God carried out in, in this world. But not only are we called to exercise hospitality with other believers, with other people, called to welcome in the presence of others, but we are also called to welcome in the presence of our Maker, to welcome in the presence of God. The Almighty God, the same God that showed up to Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, the God of Scripture, the one that we've gathered in the name of this morning, we're to welcome in His presence into our homes, signifying that He is not just Lord of the universe, He is Lord of our lives inviting Him to instruct us and to guide us and to mold us and to make us and to use us and to encourage us and to transform us and to be glorified in us as His people. Because we have peace with God through our relationship with Jesus Christ, God's presence is a welcome presence and ought to be a welcome presence among us and we ought to cherish the presence of God. Cherish the presence of God in your life. For those that don't know Christ, for those who haven't repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus for salvation, the presence of God is not a, a comforting presence because God is a God of justice. But for those who know God through Christ, for those that know the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, the presence of God ought to be a welcomed presence in our life, a comforting presence in our life, a presence that gives us great hope and joy and satisfaction as we have intimate fellowship with our Creator. God's presence showed up in Genesis chapter 18 in order to to fellowship with Abraham, but to do so in order to instruct and encourage Abraham. And I want to invite you to look again with me in Genesis chapter 18 as we see the rest of the story here. Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 9. After this meal has taken place, and Abraham has stood by serving these men as they experience this great meal at his home. Verse 9, Where is your wife Sarah? They asked him. There. In the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. 
Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was, all, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh? Say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. And Sarah was afraid. So she lied and said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. And this little interchange between God and Abraham, and the backdrop of what Sarah is doing at the same time, we learn that the people of God must believe the promises of God because nothing is impossible for God. The people of God must believe the promises of God because nothing is impossible for, for God. For us to understand what is taking place here, we need to understand a little bit about what's going on in Abraham and Sarah's life at this point. Because Sarah's no longer just barren. She's no longer simply unable to conceive. She's been trying to conceive for quite some time. But the text makes clear now that she is beyond the age in which it is biologically and humanly possible to have a child. And perhaps some in this faith family, no doubt some in this faith family have experienced that. You can identify with Sarah's pain. You can identify with Sarah's grieving as she walked through a journey year after year after year after year of trying to conceive and then finally coming to grips with the fact that it's no longer possible to conceive. It will no longer be a reality in my life. Perhaps it's no longer God's plan for me to have a biological child in this world. But God is sovereign. And we can find comfort. You can find comfort in knowing that there are many that God has used in tremendous ways, like Sarah throughout His Word, that can identify with that very idea of waiting, idea of hopelessness, idea of coming to grips with what, what God is doing. Granted, 90 years of age in that day may not equal 90 years of age in our day. We deduce from what we read here in Genesis that it doesn't. The point of the text is clear that Sarah is postmenopausal. This is not happening. There's no way from a human standpoint that Sarah can conceive at this point. That is what the text is communicating to us. This is no longer unlikely. This is impossible. And to take this even farther, verse 12 makes clear through Sarah's own internal thoughts that we get a window into by by the author of Genesis that the relations that are necessary for a child to be born are not happening and have not happened in quite some time in this marriage. I know that's probably not the picture that you thought you'd get on Sunday morning as you gather together with the people of God for church, but the important thing for us is that we need to recognize what is being communicated in God's Word. And the miracle that God is promising is going to take place. Sarah's reaction was the natural reaction to such a promise. Anyone would respond as Sarah did. Because The Lord's promises are astonishing. The Lord's promises are astonishing. They are not ordinary. They are not the sort of things that take place every day on their own. God promises great things. Things that can only take place 
the miraculous intervention of God. Remember that Jesus said, he's teaching his followers, teaching his disciples that it's difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. In fact, he told them it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for the rich to enter God's kingdom. And disciples are stunned by this. They can't believe this. Well, who then can be saved? How does Jesus respond? He says, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Folks, those who are at peace with God, those who know God, know that nothing is too incredible for God. Have you ever heard someone, someone pray to God that, that it was obvious by the way that they prayed that they knew who they were praying to and that they knew that the one they were praying to was capable of accomplishing whatever he wanted to accomplish in this world? I can remember a time like that in my own life just over eight years ago as family and friends gathered in a hospital room in Bowling Green, Kentucky as we'd recently heard news that my grandfather had pancreatic cancer. Completely stunned family. No warning signs. Weeks prior to this, we had had Christmas as usual with a family. So we gathered together knowing that this is not good news to cherish days together, cherish time together, to express love together, to pray together, to look forward to a day of reunification together. All of us succumb to the fact that prognosis, pancreatic cancer is not good. It could be days, it could be six weeks, it could be six months, but ultimately we believe this is, this is the end. This is going to take him. And I can remember one gentleman showing up who Prior to that time, I had not met. Shows up with his wife at the hospital. I'd heard his name. He's good friends of my grandfather. Clessy Lonis shows up. They begin to gather around, and he begins to pray like I've never heard anyone pray. Clearly knows the one he's praying to. Clearly knows that he is praying to the almighty God of Scripture, the one who holds the world in his hands, the one who is capable of whatever he desires. Praying as if this God can can heal anything. That wasn't God's plan in this circumstance. It was only a matter of a few weeks. Grandfather was taken away. The truth for us, as people of God, who have been transformed by the grace of God, we know that God is capable of whatever He wishes, whatever He desires. He is almighty. His promises are astounding. And as you get to know God, you begin to realize that nothing is impossible for Him, for the Lord's ability surpasses human understanding. The Lord's ability surpasses human understanding. I love what what one Bible commentator has said about this passage and these verses here, verses 9 and following, Ken Matthews writes, the miraculous nature of the announcement, the announcement, the coming birth of Isaac, the miraculous nature of the announcement is underscored by the Lord's amazing discernment of Sarah's private thoughts, Sarah's position in the tent behind him, verse 10, and her internal monologue to herself, verse 12, indicate that by unusual means the visitor knew her heart, not having seen a facial expression or heard a chuckle. Did you catch that? 
The author of this book clues us in that Sarah's in the tent. and This is an internal conversation that she is having, an internal reaction that she is having. She lies to herself. And yet the Lord knew she lied. Power not only in the announcement, but in the very conversation about the announcement that displayed the miraculous nature of God, the miraculous ability of God. And God responds to that situation. Verse 14, key verse of the entire passage, is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return, emphatic, I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. That word hard, is anything too hard for the Lord? It's an important word for us to understand what's being communicated here. It's a word that means difficult or wonderful. It can mean extraordinary. It's the same word that David used in Psalm 139 when he's describing the inescapable knowledge of God. And he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Same word that Jeremiah uses in Jeremiah chapter 32 when he prays to the Lord. He says, Ah, oh, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And then later in verse 27 of the same chapter, when the Lord gives him this word, he says, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Is anything too hard for me? Folks, nothing is too hard for the God that we worship. And those who have peace with that God recognize that nothing is too incredible for God. And we began to expect the miraculous from God. Church, we ought to expect the miraculous from God because God specializes in miracles. He specializes in accomplishing things that cannot happen any other way. Has God ever proven himself Faithful through a miracle in, in your own life. God ever provided for you financially when feared to be no way? Has God ever healed a sickness when the doctors gave little hope? Has God ever cared for you in a time of overwhelming grief? Perhaps in the wake of loss of a spouse or a child. God ever provided salvation for you when there was no other Way. There was no human way, no possible way to experience salvation. God ever provided a peace that passes all understanding for you in your life. No doubt, if we took the time to do it this morning, we could hear dozens of stories represented in this room of the miraculous hand of God intervening in our lives. Folks, what would happen if, if we lived as if we truly believed and truly knew the God of this book and the miraculous promises that he made? How would our conversations be different? How would our lives be prioritized in a different way? How would our prayer life be different if we truly came to grips with the almighty God of Scripture who has shown up in our lives, made his presence known in our lives, has come to us and Promise great things for us, for its people. How would that affect us? Father, we thank you for, for the truths of your word. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, because you're not only a, a God who has all control, you're not only the sovereign one who holds the world in your hands, but you are a 
a good God, a merciful God, a compassionate God, a God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Lord, and we thank you for that. Father, we thank you for the promise of your presence among us. Lord, help us as your people to cherish your presence, to welcome your presence, to to run after your presence, that we might have more intimate fellowship with you. Lord, we thank you for this time together this morning as Meadowbrook Baptist Church as we've gathered in your name. Lord, we pray that you are honored in our lives. We pray that you are glorified in our lives now as we respond to your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen.